we are, um, we're in the fourth week of this, this uh, series called Be Generous. So if, you are, um, if you've been here the last three weeks, you know that we haven't even started talking about money. And this morning, we really won't still be talking. I mean, we will, but it's still not, this passage is not about money, really. I mean, Jesus talks a lot about money, but do you, do you realize that everything he says is based on assumptions? Like he says what he says, and he says it a lot. I mean, he talks about money more than anything else. But what he says about it is based on a certain assumptions of who we are, uh, you know, uh, where we are, what we're here for. And what's more, they're assumptions based on whose stuff everything is in the first place, which is why we've done the last three sermons, why we're doing this one. Because before we can even talk about money, we need to get those things down so that it doesn't just sound like every other thing you've ever heard about money. And so if you have your place, we're only reading two verses this morning, but still, if you would stand in honor of God's word, just reading the first two verses of Psalm 24. This is God's word. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that everything is about you. Let it be about you this morning. Let everything you've done come to the forefront. Let everything else fall away. Open our hearts. Lord, this this in particular strikes our pride, and so we ask that you would just be gentle with us. Help us to see who you are, your worth, and to delight in it. We ask it in your name. Amen. Have a seat. So if, if, as I alluded to, if you're visiting this morning, and especially if you consider yourself a dun, right? A dun is someone who, who's maybe grew up in the church, maybe been around church for a little bit, but you kind of gave up on it a while ago. If that's you, or, or like I said, if you're visiting, there's a danger this morning of confirmation bias. Because one, one of the things that I, I hear a lot from, uh, you know, folks who, non-Christians that I interact with, and I interact with a, a great, a, a bunch, is um, one of their hesitancies about church is that they think that church is just about getting their money. If that's you, I know you don't know me, but I am asking you to take a chance this morning and set aside a little bit of what you think this is about. Okay. This series is not about get, getting something from you. This series, be generous, and you know it, it goes on for another, I don't know, four or five weeks, is about get, having getting something for you. It's about wanting something for you, and that is because what I believe we've talked about over the last four weeks, and will continue for the next several. I believe it can change your life. Can. And I believe that if you really grasp that you were created by and for God, it will free you. It will free you to stop living for things that can never satisfy you. If you really grasp as a Christian that you have been given to the world by God, it will give you a laser-like focus on your life no matter what career you pursue. And if you really grasp that where you live, work, and play is not coincidence, 
but is in fact part of God's sovereign plan to see those places flourish, it will free you to risk much for Jesus right where you are. And as we see today, as we're going to see today, if, if you truly grasp that you and I are managers, stewards of God's stuff, it will free you to be way more generous than you thought was ever possible. So ultimately, here, here is what we're going to see this morning. And that's simply this, that the stuff that you have can add meaning to your life. It can. But only if your stuff is not the meaning of your life. The stuff that you have can add meaning to your life, but, but only if the stuff that you have is not the meaning of your life. Okay? Let's dig into it and see how we see that. Um, if you're a note taker, there's an outline. If not, don't worry about it. Okay? Now, dealing with this particular issue, there are a ton of passages that we could have gone to. Uh, a ton of passages we, that we could have looked at. But the remarkable thing about this passage, about Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, is how casual it is. And what I mean is, this psalm is not about stuff. It's not about money. Psalm 24 is about a parade. It's about a religious procession. It's about God's people walking into Jerusalem in the midst of a celebration. Open your gates. Open your bars, O mighty gates, that the king of glory might come in. That's where the, that's this psalm. And it comes in just a second. That's what makes this remarkable. Because if you see something that's mentioned in passing, right? If you see something that's mentioned in passing in a totally unrelated passage, like if they're talking about stuff in a passage that has nothing to do with stuff, then it forces us to see that this is not a peripheral issue, right? In fact, it's not a truth used to manipulate people into doing something. In other words, giving money. It's a central conviction. If you see sections that are like, well, this is dealing with stuff, but in a, a passage that's not about stuff, this is dealing with with resources in a passage that's not about resources, then you go, this, this isn't someone just trying to say, like, guilt me into giving. It's, it's kind of like a, it must be a core belief because it's weaseled its way into this passage. And that's what it is. Because the things we believe most deeply are those things that seem to turn up in everything, no matter what the topic is. You with me? That's an important point. All right, so look down at verse one. It says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, the first declaration is the easiest, right? The earth is the Lord's. It's pretty straightforward. We get that. The earth, like the planet, belongs to the Lord, belongs to God. It's his. You with me? It's pretty simple. The second, though, expands on this, and it does this because it would be easier for us to view God um, like a kind of... um, a wealthy landowner, which we're going to come back to in a few minutes. But if we do that, we miss the point. Because God does not just own dirt. It says that he, the earth is the Lord's, but also the fullness thereof. Now, that's, that's not exactly how we talk about it, though, is it? Because the fullness thereof means everything that fills it. The earth is the Lord's, and so is everything that fills the earth. The planet and everything on it is God's. It belongs to him. 
And that's hard enough to get, but we still might be confused or at least limited. So the psalmist, and that's what you call someone who wrote the psalm, is a psalmist. He continues, the world, this is a parallel, let me get up there. The, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the, okay, that's your first kind of phrase. The second one is, a, is in Hebrew poetry, that's a parallel. And so it's meant to not only say the, fir- the same thing as the first one, it's meant to say it and then expand upon it. The world and those who dwell therein. You see that? Now we're getting to the point. Because you see, b- before, if we just had the, f- the first part, we could go, oh yeah, of course, God owns the trees. Oh yeah, God owns, God owns uh, you know, the, the lakes and the waters and the birds and blah, blah, blah. But we are told that his ownership extends to everyone who lives on it. And the point here, the throwaway point, remember this is a throwaway point. This is not the point of the psalm. The throwaway point is the casually mentioned idea is that everything, everything belongs to God, including us. Now, here's what's really important. There is no mention of your faith in that passage, is there? The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and those that believe in him therein. Nope. Everyone, everything is his. Now, let me be honest with you. There are two groups of people in this room right now. Those who don't believe it and those who don't live like they believe it. That's it. You and I have been saying mine since we were able to speak. Some of you got little kids, you know this. Some of you have grown kids, you know this, right? Some of you have been around kids. Like, we've done this. We have done that since we were able to speak. And now God's like, no, 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 no. It's not yours. It's mine. It's mine. There is nothing that exists that God does not own. Let me say that again. There is nothing that exists that God does not own. It means those bills in your pocket. It means those numbers at the bank that really aren't anything but numbers. It means the thing you wrote in on this morning, everything. But why, right? Why does it belong to him? I mean, we work hard for our stuff, don't we? We do. I know you do. We'll look at verse two. For he has founded it, found, founded, founded, it, founded. It. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Okay, weird. Um, what, what's that talking about? Well, here's the point of this. Remember when we started this series? Some of you didn't because you weren't here. But for those of you that were, you remember when we started this series and we talked about God's lordship, his rule over everything, and that that was based on the fact that he created it all? Like generally the person who creates it all gets to determine what is and what is not in regarding to that thing. This is pretty much saying the same thing, that God owns it all because he made it all. Now, as I say that, some of you are arguing with me right now because you're like, well, God didn't write up that lesson plan or God didn't insert that IV into that person or God didn't work up that report from my boss. You're right, you did. So that means God's ownership must go a little deeper. Think with me. I've said this before, it begs repeating. We, and when I say we, I mean particularly the kinds of people in this room. Okay? Like, Rick's judging me. No, I'm just recognizing our culture. We tend to view our situation in life as a result of our very hard work. 
as if we were born as completely blank slates and just kind of grabbed our proverbial bootstraps and got started, right? Now, many of you have worked hard. I don't want to take that away from you. Quite frankly, so have I, right? We work hard. But the abilities you have, the family you were born into, the breaks you got you probably don't even know about, even the era you were born into, you have zero control over. I've used this illustration before, but I'll say it again. If you were born in third century Tibet, your biggest concern would not be the plunging stock market and how your 401k is doing, how are your investments doing. It would be, where is my yak going to eat? That would be your concern. It would not be, you know, the housing market's up. Maybe I can sell my house for $100,000 more than I paid for it and go buy something huge. It would be, how am I going to sleep tomorrow? All of these things are a gift from God. Now, some time ago, I was stuck in a repair shop getting a recall done on my vehicle. And um, there was an interview on, and I think because they had just started a tour at the time, but it was an interview with um, the new kids on the block. Just funny that you call them that because they're all like in their late 40s. The new kids on the block. You want to know what's really true about all those guys? Besides the fact that they look ridiculous doing the same choreography they did in their 20s and their 50s, you know, because that is ridiculous. Um, Don't kill me yet, ladies. It's okay. Um, Do you know that these guys didn't go to some open audition? They didn't have some kind of, I know, it's shocking. They didn't have some kind of American Idol moment where they won out over everybody else. Do you realize that one guy was kind of the one who said, hey, you know what, we should get a group together. And he just got all of his buddies involved. Explains a lot, doesn't it? It's like one of them could sing. You're like, yeah, that's really it. And maybe not even that good. None of them could certainly dance. I want you to think about that for a minute. That means that one guy, because certain people were friends with another certain person, that their lives changed dramatically. And not just their lives. Donnie, his brother's name is Mark, Mark Wahlberg. Some of y'all remember the, he's standing up, he's got his muscles and pants are down to about here so you can see the Calvin Kleins, right? Like he made his living, he made his life, he, his life completely changed because he was the brother of someone who was the friend of someone who got chosen to create a boy band. They had nothing to do with this. They were in the right place at the right time. They made a pile of money. They are not great singers. They are certainly not great dancers. And frankly, I'm embarrassed for them these days. Now, before the stage gets stormed by angry women, middle-aged women, um, here's the point. We're the same. We're the same. And kids, for those of you who don't know the new kids on the block are, parents, educate them, please, later. Right? Okay. We are the same though. God can lay claim on everything because he made everything. He gave everything, including the things that you and I use every day, okay? And this is a consistent message of the Bible. This is not a throwaway piece. This is not something that's mentioned to guilt us into something. This is everywhere. That is why this can be a casual line thrown out right before the psalm about lifting up gates so the king of glory can come in. Just why we need to get to why this is so hard. 
I mean, if you if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels, maybe you've maybe you've uh, read what, the kind of the stories that Jesus tells that we call parables. You recognize how many of those are about a wealthy landowner who's basically given everything to his servants and then comes back one day to see what they've done with it. That's like the vast majority of his pro, of his parables are like that. What have you done with what I've given you? The logic is simple. If God has created all things, including us, if he sustains all things so that they continue to exist because he is generous to uphold them, which is the clear testimony of the scriptures, then everything is his. The problem is, this is so incredibly hard for us. The fact of it is clear, but I also want to look at why it's so hard, first with finding the ultimate. So listen, if, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I know not everyone is, what I'm about to do is explain, explain how the Bible actually explains this to us. Because normally, people view the Bible as kind of a collection of stories, maybe some helpful hints, some little words here and there we can take out to make us feel better and not really get to what's actually the whole thing is talking about, maybe some rules to follow. But the Bible actually presents a single cohesive story. A single cohesive and coherent way of looking at the world. And so that's what I want to get at. Now, that, that doesn't mean that Christians are always consistent with that way of looking at the world. Because no one really is truly consistent with their way of viewing the world. That doesn't mean that we one, okay? In this case, like I said earlier, the Bible teaches that you and I were made for God. That we were made for him. We were made to live dependently on him, to look to him for our life and meaning and value. That's how we were made. But the problem is, is that we turned away from him, we betrayed him, and said, I can take it from here. You can't be trusted, but I got this. I can do this on my own. And when we did that, everything got messed up. Because you see, we were made to have something, particularly someone, be ultimate in our lives. You were made to have God as ultimate in your life. We can't not do that. The option is not, I can have God ultimate in my life or nothing. No, that's like a fish saying, I can breathe water or nothing. That's me saying, I can can eat or not. Can't do that. So if God isn't ultimate, where does that leave us? Well, according to the Bible, we now take that place that was meant for God and we put other things in that spot to give us life, to give us value, to give us meaning, to give us our rightness. The problem is, is that we take things that were meant to be a means and we make them our meaning. We take things that are valuable and we make them vital. We take things that are good and we make them into God. The Bible calls that idolatry, okay? Idolatry. It's not just about bowing down to the little statue. You know, it's not just about, for, for some of us, we get really scared or, or, or angry or just perturbed and we go by and we see, a, like, in our neighbor's yard, they put up the Buddha. We're like, idolatry. It is, but it's more. It's taking anything And placing it into your life as ultimate. Giving ultimate worth to anything other than him. And this is what we do with our money. And you know this. You know that your hope, that you hope your money, your stuff will make things right for you. Keep you safe. Make life easy. Prove you're worth something. Give you satisfaction. Whatever. I mean, 
Some of us, some of us as Christians have been deceived into thinking that that's what God wants for us. That what he wants for us is to have all of this stuff that kind of gives our lives meaning and value and shows how great a people we are. But here's what you also know. It hasn't yet, has it? Some of you in this room are making more money than you ever thought you ever would. And it's not enough, is it? It's never enough. It's always just a little bit more. It's never like, I'm good. I, you know, if I'm making six figures, I'm great. And then you are, and you're like, but, but that guy, if I were just doing, a, you know, it's funny. I thought this would, but there's so many bills. See, what's crazy about us is that we never consider, it never even crosses our minds that our money, that our stuff actually can't do what we're looking for it to do. We simply think we just haven't gotten enough of it yet. But the scripture tells us why. It's because that stuff, that money can't fill a spot that was created for God. Money is a means to an end. But when money becomes the end... Money becomes your end. Like it ends you. So what do we do? Here's my bet. If this describes you, you've made something else, something good to be God for you. If that's you, my bet is you're exhausted. Just exhausted. I'm betting that because there's no rest when the work is unfinished. See, the problem with looking to stuff is that it is fundamentally insecure. And nothing like the last year has taught us that. Which means that you have to constantly work to either achieve it or to maintain it. And if that is exhausting, and if that's you, I'm sorry. I know you're exhausted. I know you're tired. You don't have to be. Money can return to being a means instead of your meaning, but only through Jesus. See, Jesus came to restore us to God, to reconcile us to him, to put God back into that place of ultimacy, to take those idols and kind of knock them out and put us back, or to put him back there. And he did that by living perfectly, by living perfectly dependent on God and dying to bear our betrayal of God. And so that now, by faith, everything he has done, all of that work, all of that finished work, becomes ours. So listen, if you were made for God, it makes sense, it makes perfect sense why money and, and sex or power or stuff or comfort or ease or safety never seems to be enough for you. Because it can't. It can't be. All of those things are good, but they're terrible gods. Jesus can restore you to God so that those things can just go back to being good. They can just be good. Because listen to me, you will worship something. You will. You're made to. And I know some of you don't believe a lick I'm saying. That's, that's okay. But if you think about it, Worship is not just singing with our hands up. Worship is applying something worth, value, that thing that is going to make life worth living. That's what worship is. 
giving, ascribing to something ultimate worth. That is the most amazing thing ever. You will worship something. You will give something ultimate worth in your life. You will look to something to give you value and meaning and hope. And we will come back to this over and over in this series. But if you look to anything other than Jesus, it will fail you. It will fail you. Because the difference is his work is a gift. You didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. It's a gift. And that frees you to return money to be a means to an end instead of the end itself. It makes it easier to see what you have as a gift because you aren't looking for it, whether that's your job, your abilities, your your training. You're not looking for any of that stuff to prove anything or to accomplish anything for you. Okay. So that's the groundwork. But what does it matter? Where does that leave us? Well, first, I want to engage with the mindset of a steward. There is a reason that so many of Jesus' parables present God as the landowner and us as either a manager or a steward. There's a reason. It's a good reason. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Some of you are familiar with money management because it's what you do. Um, But A manager and a steward do the same thing. Both govern someone else's stuff according not to their desires, but to the person's desires, right? They govern the stuff that has been entrusted to them according to the goals and desires of that person. And if they do anything other than that, if they govern it according to their desires, they go to jail, Because their job is not, I want to do with their money what I want to do with it. It's, I'm listening to my client. These are their goals. I'm going to do everything I can. I might not be the best at it, but I'm going to do everything I can to meet their goals. You with me? That's what a steward, that's what a manager does. In the ancient world, a steward, which was generally in Jesus' time, like the chief of the servants or slaves, because that's what they were, over your household, when you left, that person was in charge and governed everything, all of your stuff, not according to what they thought was best, but what you thought was best. You could be wrong. They could be smarter than you. Oftentimes they were. But if you did it other than the way they wanted it done, when they came home, They killed you, okay? Because that's not what stewards do. This is the way that the Bible calls us to view everything we have. Everything. Our money, our time, our stuff, even the individual gifts that you and I have. Now that changes things, doesn't it? changes a lot, in fact, if we think about it. When you get that raise, you get that tax return, you get that new gig or that that inheritance or that gift that raises a completely other set of questions, doesn't it? When you're convinced from a commercial or a pop-up ad that those shoes or that new device will literally change your life and pull you out and you pull out a credit card, you have another set of questions to ask, don't you? If that's reality. 
See, to gain the mindset of a steward, first you have to believe that the pleasure of God towards you is more valuable than that thing or that momentary pleasure that you want. Why do I say that? Because you and I are creatures of desire. We don't like it. We like to think, no, I am perfectly rational. But at the end of the day, a want is not rational. It's a desire I want, right? I want. You know that that ice cream sundae is not the best thing for you. But nine out of ten of us in this room, when we have a craving for it, we're going to go for it anyway, right? That's a want. We are creatures of desire. We can discipline those desires. We can redirect those desires, but we cannot deny them because we were created for them. But if having been rescued by God, your desires now shift to wanting him by wanting his smile, by wanting to please him, that can actually override your desire for pleasing yourself. So first and foremost, we have to get the mindset of a steward by understanding what we desire. Secondly, you actually have to know what's important to the Lord. You know what most of us think? Most of us think God wants us to be happy. Don't we? God would want me to be happy. Well, that's true as far as it goes. But I think God's definition of what's going to make us happy and what our definition is tends to differ. It tends to differ a great deal. (laughs) How would God have you spend the resources that he has gifted to you? If that were the question, what purposes would he have you pursue? Listen, listen, don't hear. Some of you are thinking this right now. Don't hear me. Like God does not want you to be miserable. That is not what I'm saying, okay? God does not want you to be miserable. But our first thought needs to be, what does my Lord want? Lastly, maybe this is the hardest. A steward or a manager understands that they are accountable for the choices they make with the resources they've been given. Right? And maybe that accountability is simply being fired, but it's still accountability. And this is the hard one for me, right? Because I want to assume that I'm autonomous. Maybe you're like me. We're not. If you are a Christian, there will come a day when you stand before the Lord to give an account for what he gave you. Now, I'm not saying that your place in heaven or hell is kind of judged by that. Praise Jesus, that's not true. That's on Jesus and on him alone. But there will come a time, the scriptures are very clear, that we're going to have to stand before him and give an account for what he gave you. Remember Jesus' parable, the talents. And talents doesn't mean gifts you have. Talents is a measure of weight. It's amount of money. That, that is literally about, I gave you this much money, what did you do with it? It's literally about that. So that will need to shape your decisions, okay? Now, practical. Let me get into practical stuff because some of you are thinking, Rick, I've totally blown this. Of course you have. Of course you've blown it. So did I. More than likely, I would guess no one ever taught you any different. See, in churches, pastors are so scared to teach about the truth about money because uh, one of two things. One, they're going to be seen as believing that all they want is your money. Or two, because um, they're, they're trying to fool you into thinking that they don't really want your money. 
So we leave out this entire section of what it means to follow Jesus because of either the ego or the fear of the preacher. But if the reality is, and this is true, I can say this for myself, I can say this for our elders and our deacons, we don't want anything from you. We want something for you. And as I've said before, this can change your life. Of course you blew it. But listen to me, the grace of God in Jesus is way bigger than however it is that you blew it. So take it to him, confess it, ask for grace to change, and then let's get on with it, okay? Very simple. No need for shame. Forget, confess it, ask for forgiveness, ask for grace to change, and let's move on, okay? You done? All right, here we go. All right. Let me give you some very practical considerations, some practices. And I give these to you because I believe your life will be so much better when you have this worked out. Okay, first, we're going to talk about this stuff for the next several weeks. Um, so if you're, if you're like, if you're thinking, well, if you're at home right now and you're listening to me on the podcast and you're thinking, glad I missed out on that one, <laughs> we're coming back to this stuff. So don't worry, uh, you're going you're gonna to get this. But we're going to talk about this for the next several weeks. First and foremost, I want you to rearrange the orders of your priorities. And here's what I mean. Most of us live according to this priority list. Spend, save what we can, give whatever's left. Right? We view giving, we view whether that's generosity, the church generosity outside of ourselves, we view it as kind of the, the optional bill at the end of the month. If there's enough left over, we do that. We spend what we need to on, on our stuff. We save if we can, but that's iffy. And then we give if, I mean, what do I got with me today? Like, right? I want you, because this is what the Bible would tell us, I would want you to flip that order. We need to give, save, and then live. Okay, now, don't check out on me. Don't check out on me. This will change your life if you let it. It will. So first, give. What I mean is this. If you don't plan to give, you're not going to. You're not going to. If it's not something that you have a plan to do, if it's that thing that's left over, it will never happen. I know it will never happen or it will be always the left. It's, it's always I intend to, right? If you fail to plan to give, you're planning to fail in your giving. It's just as easy as that. If all you plan to have are good intentions, then all you're going to have Good intentions, and we all know what road that paved, right? I'm not saying that that's what, never mind. I probably shouldn't have said that because now you're all like, Rick doesn't believe in the grace of Jesus. Yes, I do. It was, never mind. Moving on. Here's the best way to plan your giving, percentage giving. Percentage giving is the best way to plan it, okay? Now, baseline. Just throwing out baselines. We're going to get to the individuals in a second. Baseline giving, according to the scriptures, for your local church, just for the local church, if you're a Christian, you're in a local church, is 10%. Now, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? It's crazy. We're crazy. That's nutty. Well, you have to start somewhere, right? Go 5%. Okay. One. Can you do one? My guess is you're going to try one. And it's going to go okay for you. And then you can try two. And you can try three. You can move up, start somewhere, but add a percentage every year. The point is you need to plan to give. And if you're already doing this, if you're already doing this, I'm going to challenge you, 
to increase it. Because 10% is the baseline. It's not a golf clap. It's not a pat on the back. You understand that in the, in the Old Testament, in the scriptures where, where we're taught a lot about how things were supposed to be, you had the 10% and that, was, that went to go do this. And then you have other percentages and these go to do this and this to this. And oh, by the way, at the end of your harvest, leave the edges so that the poor can get it. And you're like, how much profit have I missed out on? A lot. Because that's not the goal. Okay? It's the baseline. Paul links, and we're going to get to this passage, but the Apostle Paul, who's one of the main writers of the New Testament, links Christian giving to following how Jesus gave of himself. You cannot outgive Jesus. Okay? Next. So if that's first, that's, that's giving. Next is saving. Saving is not the opposite of spending. <laughs> saving is spending on preparation. Right? Giving is the opposite of spending, because spending is on you, giving is giving to others. Saving is, is, is spending on preparation. You also have to plan on saving. It can't be willy-nilly or whatever's left at the end of the month. After you've planned your giving, then it's time to plan your, spend, your saving. I'd recommend a percentage on that as well. Can I look in the Bible and say it's a biblical truth. You must have a, no, I can't. I'm just saying that I think this is a matter of wisdom. Plan on giving what the Bible says, plan on saving according to some percentage, work that out yourself and then live on the rest. Live on the rest. Rick, that's so opposite. I'm so messed up right now. I get it. For some of us, that's going to mean rearranging our lifestyle. For others in this room, listen, it's okay. We can acknowledge this. We've gotten ourselves into some pretty bad debt trying to pretend that we're high rollers. And we're not. Because we thought being a high roller would satisfy us. And it hasn't. If you need help with this, our deacons would love to meet with you to talk about it. Trust me, there's no shame in this. Like, it's just, look, okay, again, I've messed this up. Sure you have. You probably were never taught. There's no shame in that. It just is what it is. But listen to me. Money can, stuff can, it can add meaning to your life. I'm not saying, you know, money can't buy happiness, as I said last week, but it can buy a boat, right? You can buy a truck to pull it. Yeti 110, ice down with a silver bullet. It, 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 can, it can add meaning to your life. It can. But only when it returns to being the means to the end it was made for. And if we've seen anything over the last three weeks, we've seen that that end is to see others flourish. All that we need, God provides. And if you're a Christian, you are called a co-heir. Listen to me. You are called a co-heir of all creation with Jesus. Which means there's coming a day when it will all be yours too. But it isn't yet. It isn't. Now, we operate as stewards. Stewards of God's riches. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We need you. We seek you. And Lord, many of us, if not all of us, are challenged, I know I am, challenged by your word and what it calls us to be. To be generous. To be gracious with our stuff, with our, 
with our time, with our, the gifts that you've given us to, to be givers of life, givers of things, because that's what you are, to image that. But Lord, everything in us pulls us the other way. So Jesus, we ask for grace. Grace to see that we will only flourish when you are in that place of ultimate worth. And the grace to resist the pull to see everything else in that spot. We need you for this. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.